The Evolve with Pete Evans podcast is a conversation about my favorite ingredients for a healthy human experience. We take an informed look at topics that include nutritional and emotional well-being as well as expanded consciousness. I love exploring the topics that are not traditionally taught at school and take a deep dive into them with my special guests. I invite you to sit back and come along for the ride with an open mind and heart and please share with your family and friends as these podcasts may just be the seed from which many things will flourish from. Cheers. We've been using Waters Co. water filters for the last 10 years and I wholeheartedly trust my family's health with them. Waters Co. established 1977 have personal and domestic water filters which turns your ordinary tap water into great tasting alkaline ionized mineral water which removes up to 99.9% of fluoride, heavy metals, chemicals and bacteria so you can love your tap water again. The Bio 1000 is the latest edition of the BMP 1000 model and the culmination of over 40 years of experience and research into water filtration by some of the world's leading scientists. Waters Co. was first to market with natural gravity-fed systems, creating alkaline water way back in 1984, and have continued to lead the market in research and development, setting the benchmark for all other brands to follow. Please go to my webpage, PeteEvans.com, to learn more and to receive your special discount from my link on the products page. You're going to love it. For over three decades, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. has been one of the world's leading environmental advocates. He is the founder and president of Waterkeeper Alliance, the umbrella group for 300 local waterkeeper organizations in 34 countries that track down and sue polluters. Under his leadership, Waterkeeper has grown to become the world's largest clean water advocacy organization. Around 2005, parents of vaccine-injured children began encountering Mr. Kennedy's speeches and writings about the toxic mercury-based preservative, Thimerosal. They embraced new hope that this environmental champion would finally expose the truth about vaccine injury and win justice for injured children. Kennedy is known for his fierce and relentless brand of environmental activism and his advocacy for transparent government and rigorous science. He is now applying his tenacious energies and sophisticated strategies to exposing the fraud and corruption within the CDC and the pharmaceutical industry. To find out more about Robert Kennedy Jr., please visit childrenshealthdefense.org. That's C-H-I-L-D-R-E-N-S-H-E-A-L-T-H d-e-f-e-n-s-e dot org Robert, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. How are you, brother? I'm good. Hang on, the apocalypse. I'm fascinated about this time in history. I mean, there is so much going on at the moment and to be honest with you, I am so confused. I don't know what is true, what is fake, what is manufactured, how do you navigate through this time yourself and stay grounded? Yeah, how do you deal with what is presently happening in your country and the world? Oh, I mean, there's two answers to that. One is it's really important for us to, you know, we have to be really disciplined on our side about staying grounded in terms of fact base and evidence base and making sure that there's so many rumors and fake news on both sides and that we don't connect dots that have not been connected by science. We can point them out, but we 
are really disciplined and rigorous to make sure that the things that we talk about are you know based on evidence-based science. The broader issue that you're talking about is, you know, I think a more difficult and more interesting issue is how do you stay emotionally and spiritually balanced at a time when all the world seems to be falling apart and whole nations have lost touch with and people respected leaders have lost touch with what we always considered fundamental and essential bedrock values and where everything seems to be up in the air. And I, you know, for me, I have to take a philosophical approach and say, you know, I have to get up every day and look myself in the mirror and I have no control over anything except for this little piece of real estate that is inside my own shoes. And that's what I'm responsible for. And that, you know, I need to fight for what I believe is right, but also to let go of the results and wake up every day and start slugging again and start fighting again, ultimately, if we have to, to die with our boots on. But to be peaceful inside of myself and, you know, and know that if I'm doing the right thing, then then I'm entitled to be peaceful and grateful for, you know, for living in interesting times. Yeah, I would love to talk about your family values because your family is synonymous with speaking the truth in all aspects. And how has that shaped who you are as a person over the years? And do sometimes you want to run away from it all or is that not even an option for you? I mean, if you're talking about my family, I'm very grateful to have the background and the life that God gave me. You know, I've written a book called American Values that essentially is about my family and about our history. A lot of it is the 70-year history or battle between my family and the CIA. But a lot of it is just about the history of our family coming over from Ireland. And over for 800 years, Catholics were not allowed to participate in sovereign decisions about their nation. They weren't allowed to hold political office, to practice a profession, to vote in elections, even to read and write, and or to own land. And they came to America with all of its promise. My family was able to really live that promise. And they arrived in Boston, all of my grandparents, in 1848, during the height of the starvation. And, you know, these were people who had not been able to participate in in politics for, what, 20 generations. And they took to politics like a starving man takes the food. All of my grandparents, my my great-grandfather, Patrick Joseph Kennedy, was a ward. Boston, my grandmother's father, Honey Fitz, was the first Irish Catholic mayor of Boston. And they loved their Irish traditions and their Irish religion, but they also loved America and they loved the promise of this country and they felt it in their own lives. They adopted the Protestant, Puritan founders of our country and the idealism that they had had about America being kind of a noble experiment as their own background. And, you know, my grandmother would take us all to her children for. 20 years on pilgrimages to see not only the battlefields of the American Revolution, but also 
the homes and the artifacts and the relics and the places of you know, the homes of Emerson and Thoreau, Walden Pond, etc. The philosophers who had created the philosophical underpinnings for democracy. And we were kind of raised with 29, me and my 29 cousins were raised in that milieu. We were all raised on one sprawling piece of property, essentially, in a seaside village in Cape Cod. And we were kind of schooled in those principles and a love for language, for, for our art, for history, you know, which my grandmother deliberately tried to inculcate into us and a real sense that, that we were really lucky if we could spend our lives in some noble cause. And I think that's, you know, those were the essential parameters and that created me and all of my cousins. You have known for standing in your truth against some of the biggest, what I would call human rights, which is the access of clean water, the access to food that hasn't been potentially sprayed by poisons. Now, you have been applauded for this work over the time that you've been fighting for these causes. Yet there's one cause that you stand for, which is safe vaccines, which seems to cause so much polarization out there in the public sphere and the political sphere and the medical sphere in everything. Now, do you see any difference between fighting for clean water, fighting for clean food and fighting for safe medicine? Is there any difference in that? And why do you think that people see this as something that is completely left field and shouldn't be discussed? And question for you, and I know the answer, but are you anti-vax? Because that is what you've been labelled. It is what I have been labelled just for... And all I do is ask questions to doctors and say, why is it that some kids seem to be affected by vaccines and some do not seem to be affected by it? And yet I'm not even allowed to ask that question, apparently. On anti-vax, I've said that repeatedly for many years. I'm called anti-vax because it's a way to marginalize, make me look unreasonable, make me to discredit me and to, uh, to isolate me. If you can apply a label like that to somebody, then you don't have to listen to what they say. And I think that's really what the objective is. I've been fighting to get mercury out of fish for almost 40 years, and nobody calls me any fish. I try to get mercury out of vaccines, but they call me anti-vaccine. And, you know, my objective, and what I've said from the beginning is, if they're I want safe vaccines. I want robust science. I want regulators who are independent of financial entanglements with the industries that they regulate. And those are all the same things that I've been fighting for on water and food and pesticides and energy and all the other you know, battles that I've been involved with. And what I've also said is, show me a study. Let's study vaccines the way that we have to study other medicines. Let's do real safety studies where you look at a placebo group, an unexposed group, and compare the health outcomes in the unexposed group with the exposed group. Every other medicine has to do double-blind placebo studies, which means they give 10,000 people the blue pill, 
and 10,000 people are blue pill that is looks identical but is inert. And they're called double blind because neither the researchers nor the subjects know who got what. And that obviates the opportunities for bias in those kind of studies. And you look at health outcomes in those groups for five years, not just at the target disease, but also you measure the other adverse events. You see, you know, if one group had more hospitalizations, more heart attacks, more kidney failure, et cetera, and you do that for a long period because many injuries from medication have long incubation periods or long diagnostic horizons. You won't see, for example, cancers for many years in some cases. I tried the Monsanto cases, and in those cases, we were seeing cancers appear from six months after exposure to 20 years after exposure. That's a bell curve. And the same is true for medications. You don't see if somebody gets. Hepatitis B shot and the allergies, peanut allergies, or whatever, you're not going to see those for three or four years. There will be no diagnosis if they had mental disorder from that, you know, mercury or aluminum exposure, which would be expected because they're neurotoxins and you're giving them to one day old babies. You won't see that maybe till that child is in school. Or until, you know, they're in kindergarten. You make the average age for an autism diagnosis is 4.2 years. That means many kids are not diagnosed till they're 8 years old. And so, you know, what I've said is let's actually look at a study. The problem is that vaccines are exempt from safety testing. And this is an artifact of the CDC's legacy as the public health service. The public health service was the predecessor agency to the CDC. The Public Health Service in the United States was a quasi-military agency. That's why people at the CDC have military ranks, like Surgeon General. And one of the other artifacts of that legacy is that the vaccine program was initially launched as a national security defense against biological attacks on our country. So the Public Health Service wanted to make sure uh, if Russians attack us with anthrax or some other biological agent, we could quickly fabricate a vaccine and then deploy it to 200 million Americans without regulatory impediments. And so they said, if we call it a medicine, we're going to have to safety test it, and that takes five years. So let's call it something else. We'll call it a biologic, and we will exempt biologics from safety testing. And so it was well-intentioned, as are many of the, you know, cataclysms that, that occur to us. And when the Vaccine Act was passed in our country, which was 1986, in which Congress gave the manufacturers of vaccines blanket immunity from liability, those companies, the four companies that make all 72 vaccines that are now mandated for our children, took advantage of that designation, that immunity. And they said, wait, now here we have a product that you don't have to test, so you're saving $200 million in front of FDA. Because normally that's what the safety testing costs for phase one through phase three trials. Number two, there is no liability. And that's the biggest cost for every other medication. Number three, there is no advertising costs and there is no marketing costs because this product's going to be mandated to 74 million kids. It was the perfect product and that the margins are high. 
you can make a billion dollars a year if you can get it mandated on the CDC schedule. So there was a gold rush where all of these companies converged on the CDC and they got their vaccines, all of these additional vaccines put on the schedule. When I was a kid, I had three vaccines. My today's children get 72 doses. A lot of them are for illnesses that were not a public health threat. They weren't even casually contagious. Hepatitis B was a was a disease that affected, you know, intravenous drug users and prostitutes. Why do we give five shots of it to every child beginning on day one of their life? Well, we know why. The reason why is because Merck made that vaccine for prostitutes, for male promiscuous male homosexuals, and for intravenous drug users, and none of them wanted to buy it. So they went back to the CDC, and they said, we made this, you told us to make it, you now got to save our company and make this profitable. And CDC said, don't worry, we'll mandate it for children. Even though children are at zero risk, zero risk. And the only way a child can get it is if their mother has it. And every mother, prior to giving birth in this country, every mother is tested for hepatitis B. So a typical child is at zero risk. Why do you give it to a two-year-old child or a one-day-old child? And then it only lasts two years. You have to give it again another two. That child is not going to have sex with a prostitute in the first two years of life. He's at zero risk. He's not going to be an intravenous drug user. And, you know, it's just a profit for the company. If you look at all of these vaccines, the same dynamic takes place. They're not, you know, if you actually look, you know, at what the science says that it happened during the clinical studies, there's strong reason to argue that most of the vaccines now required are actually causing far more harm and deaths than they're averting. But they don't want to do those studies that will conclusively prove that. So they make sure that the studies that are mandated for every other vaccine or every other medicine, which are placebo studies or vaccinated versus unvaccinated study, where you look at a vaccinated population and a similarly situated unvaccinated population, and then you'd say, look at health outcomes and see who's healthier, who lives longer. Those studies are never done, and they will not allow them to be done. And the one place where they did it, those kind of studies was the DTP vaccine in Africa, which is Bill Gates' number one vaccine and the WHO's number one vaccine is given to 161 million children in Africa every year. It's given to them to prevent diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis. Nobody had ever looked at whether there was a beneficial impact on child mortality. In other words, whether the children getting those vaccines were actually living longer, healthier lives than the children who did not. Bill Gates has his vaccines, his $10 billion in vaccines saves 8 million lives. Nobody's ever proven that. Nobody's actually looked at those children and said, are they living longer? And the Danish government said, this is the number one vaccine in the world. We ought to study it. So the Danish Norwegian government and the, one of the biggest vaccine company in Europe, Aten Serum Institute, financed a study in Guinea-Bissau of exactly that question in 2017. Looked, and in Guinea-Bissau, there was an anomaly in the way that they gave. They gave the vaccine to every child in the country, but they gave it to them on different schedules. And there was an anomaly where 
Half the kids between two months and five months of age were vaccinated and half the not. So they had the perfect natural experiment and they had 30 years of data. And when they went in and they hired the best, the most revered, loved, respected scientists in the world to do this study, led by Peter A. Aby, who's the, who has more peer-reviewed studies on Africa. He's the world's authority on African vaccines. And they went in there and they looked at that data. And what did they find? They found that the children who were vaccinated, girls who were vaccinated, had 10 times the death rate of kids who were not vaccinated. And the, these girls were not dying of anything anybody ever associated with the vaccine. They were not dying of diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis. They were protected against those diseases. They were dying of malaria and bilharzia and anemia and dysentery. And what the scientists realized was that the vaccine was protecting them against the target disease, but it had ruined their immune systems. And it made them much more likely to die than their peers of non-target infections. And when Peter A. Aby went public, and by the way, you know, Peter Ghosh, who founded the Cochrane Collaboration, went in and double-checked all those studies, and again and again, they've been, you know, confirmed. And when they went public, the response by Bill Gates and WHO was to try to destroy those scientists and yank their funding. Instead of saying, wait a minute, we got a problem here and we need to start looking at this, you know, across Africa. So today, they're giving that vaccine to 161 million African children a year, and the likelihood is they're killing millions of them. It's genocide. And um, we need science, we need transparency. Why isn't that just common sense? Why does this become a political issue? Why does this subject, me or you, they're becoming pariahs. You know, why can't we have this debate and why can't we have it civilly? It's a common sense question. And if somebody has, if anybody out there has some science that says I'm wrong, I want to hear about it. And here's the deal I'll make with any of your listeners who can come up with that. If you can find me a study that shows that vaccinated kids are healthier and longer live than unvaccinated kids, I will put it on my website and I will resign from Children's Health Defense and go back to protecting rivers full time, which is what I want to be doing. I don't believe that study can be made. I have a question and thank you so much for that information. I've learned something new today. Question is, so yesterday I shared a, a petition that is just started in Australia the laws have passed in this country, in Australia, that health workers now need to be vaccinated for the flu in, I think it's most of the states in Australia, if not all of Australia. So nurses, doctors. They've also, for anybody in a nursing home, they have made it basically mandatory for anyone visiting their parents, their family, their grandparent that's in a nursing home, a visitor needs to have show proof that they've just recently been vaccinated for uh, the flu vaccine. And that includes people that work in the nursing home, such a, a contractor like an electrician that works there. All the staff need to have their flu vaccinations. Now, I posted that and I actually shared that I'm not anti-vax, but I support this petition. And I asked people if they would like to share their comments about 
positive, negative, whatever has happened since they've had a flu vaccine. A lot of people say, I get it every year, nothing wrong. Everybody's happy in my family and we always get it done because that's what we've been told to do. Other people say that they've had an adverse reaction to the flu. They actually caught the flu or they've had some other issue or their parents had the flu vaccine and have ended up in hospital or developed another illness. So why is it that some people can be affected and some people don't seem to be affected? And if that is the case that people are being affected, number one, why is it the media reporting it? And number two, how can they make it mandatory? Well, here's the thing about the flu vaccine. And by the way, I want to say this, that I just talked about a scientific study that was published in 2017, the study on the DTP vaccine in Africa. And I want to tell people, just in case there's any of your listeners who actually wants to double check me, the name of that study is Morganson. And Morganson is with E's, M-O-R-G-E-N-S-E-N, et al., 2017, it's January 2017, and it's published in a, in a publication, it's a high-level publication called eBiopharma. There's a study that came out in this year, in uh, January of 2019, and it's by Wolf, W-O-L-F-E, and it's a Pentagon study. And the Pentagon looked at they gave a number of their of soldiers flu vaccines, and they had a control group that did not receive the vaccine, and they looked at their susceptibility to coronavirus. And what they found was that the soldiers who got the flu vaccine had a 36% greater chance of getting coronavirus than soldiers who did not. So it's a time now when that's one study you know, it doesn't mean yes or no, but it means we need to be careful and we need to look some more. As it turns out, there's a lot of science on that issue. And what the science generally says is there, and by the way, Cochrane Collaboration has done, and the British Medical Journal have done a series of meta reviews on the flu vaccine and its efficacy and its safety. And the author of the British Medical Journal Meta Reviews, there are several of them, is Peter Doshi, D-O-S-H-I. The Cochrane Collaboration, which is the ultimate arbiter of pharmaceutical science, pharmaceutical products, the Cochrane Collaboration was founded to counterbalance the pharmaceutical industry's control of the scientific journals and to double-check those journals to make sure that the science is actually credible. It has 30,000 volunteer scientists who are the top-level scientists all over the world. And they look at all these pharmaceutical studies, and they do comprehensive reviews of them, very critical reviews. And they looked in 2010 and 2017, they looked at the flu shots to see whether they were effective. And what they found was they looked at in the 2010 study, they looked at 227 flu studies, and then they distilled them and consolidated them and looked at the findings. What they found was that there was zero evidence that, well, first of all, they found that in order to, that the efficacy was very low in the flu shot, 
100 flu shots have to be given to prevent one case of flu. In one of the studies, in the 2017 study, 73 flu shots had to be given to prevent one case of flu. And they said this is very conservative because it includes some of the studies that were done by industry, which Cochrane Collaboration cautioned are probably not credible. And they also added that there is zero evidence that the flu shot prevents any deaths or any hospitalizations. Oh, it's preventing flu symptoms in a small number of people, and they're mainly young people. But the flu shot was, you know, originally promoted for saving the lives of seniors. But if you look at the death rates for seniors, and then you overlay the flu shot, the more flu shots that we give, the higher death rate is for seniors. This may be the reason. So the flu shot, although we give it, you know, virtually as ubiquitous in the United States, it has not brought down mortality for seniors. In fact, senior citizen mortality has skyrocketed since we started giving the flu shot. And this may be the reason. There's a lot of studies that show that flu shots dramatically increase the vulnerability to non-flu respiratory infections. So that if you get, there's one study by Moss and another study by Cowling, C-O-W-L-I-N-G-S, that show that people who got the flu shot had 4.4 times greater chance of getting a non-flu infection. And that includes coronavirus and other infections that are not related to the flu. And there are lots and lots of studies that indicate that. And so the, you know, the mandate uh, that the seniors get the flu, that health workers get the flu, is not science-based. And in fact, the science would tell you that they should not get the flu shot because they're more likely, according to the science, to get a non-flu infection like coronavirus. And that's not saying that it definitely will give you coronavirus, but it's saying it, that there's a lot of scientific studies out there that indicate that the flu shot makes you much more vulnerable to non-flu viral upper respiratory infections like coronavirus. And many of those included coronavirus in the study and showed dramatic increases in coronavirus among people vaccinated with the flu. You know, there's a side issue here, which is, all of these powers that be right now are telling us, you know, just wait for the coronavirus vaccine. Stay locked up until you get a coronavirus vaccine. And what are the chances that they're going to get a coronavirus vaccine? Well, I would say they're very low. And in fact, the Moderna vaccine, which it was FDA's vaccine, FDA and Gates, it's, you know, it was the first one out of the gate in our country, and they gave it to 45 people. They gave it to three groups of 15 people, and the results of that vaccine of those studies came out today. And the way that they came out, FDA announced them, and they announced them as a success. So if you read, look at CNN or you look at the mainstream media, they'll tell you, oh, it's a great success. They produced antibodies in all these people, in the 45 people. There were three groups. One got a low dose, one got a medium dose, and the third one got the high dose. In the high dose, three of the people had serious adverse events. 
I just got the study before I came in here, so I didn't have a chance to look up what serious adverse events mean, but usually that means hospitalizations. That's three out of 15 people. That's a big deal. So that's about, what is that, 20%? And, you know, that means if you gave it to 7 billion people, you'd have at least a billion of them getting seriously sick. So that's not a solution. That's a much higher rate of serious illnesses than COVID would impose. And when you give it to many more people, you'll probably find out that some of them die. You know? um, so, but the other thing is about the COVID vaccine, I'll tell you a couple things about it. One is that we've had a flu vaccine for 90 years. We've had it since 1930. And it's still only helping you have to still give 73 flu shots to, to have anything good happen to one person. Why does anybody think that we're going to get a COVID vaccine that's going to suddenly give everybody immunity with no problems? It would be, re it's really almost an outlandish, it's like magical thinking. And the other thing is that, you know, we don't have a COVID vaccine today, but it's not because people haven't been trying to get a COVID vaccine for a long, long time. And you know what the results have been because people generally know there is a phenomena that is associated with COVID vaccines that is called, it's known by a number of names, paradoxical immune enhancement is one of the names, another is pathogenic priming. And what it means is, you know, after the SARS epidemic in 2002, there was a consortium of nations, including the Chinese and Western nations, that all got together and funded a lot of vaccines for COVID. And they came up with about 35 candidates. And they chose the four best of those. And they took those, and there were different vaccines. I think a couple of them were RNA vaccines. There was a spike protein vaccine. There were a number of different models. They gave them to ferrets, which are the closest analogy to human beings when it comes to upper respiratory infections. And the ferrets initially demonstrated a really strong immune response, and that is the metric that FDA used to license new vaccines. People, you know, FDA, people imagine that the way the vaccines get licensed, they give a thousand people a shot, and then a thousand people a fake shot, and then they send them out during flu season and see who gets what. That never happens. Nothing like that ever happens. What really happens is they give a thousand people a shot, and there is no placebo group, and then they take for the safety studies, and then they take blood from those people and they see how many of them got a serological response, in other words, how many have antibodies in their blood. And if they have an antibody response that is sufficiently robust and durable, in other words, it lasts a long time, like a year, and it is robust enough that the FDA believes that it will defend the body against other instructions to the disease, and they give them the license. Well, in this case, the ferrets developed a very strong antibody response, and they were very, very happy. They thought this, you know, we won the lottery. Then something very horrible happened, which is they exposed, they did a challenge with the ferrets where they exposed them to the wild virus. And instead of defending the virus, the ones with the strong antibody response got much sicker than unvaccinated animals. 
and realized that it was producing a kind of antibody that actually made the receptors of the virus stickier on the ferret receptor sites. And the ferrets were getting inflammation throughout their whole body, and many of them died. And then they remembered that in the 1960s, they had also tried an RSV vaccine that was very, very similar to coronavirus. They had skipped the animal studies and tried it directly on kids. And they'd given it to about 35 kids. And the same thing happened. The kids got an admirable immune response. But then when they got exposed to the wild virus, those kids got very, very, very sick, much sicker than the unvaccinated kids. And two of the kids died. It was a scandal. And everybody remembered it. And nobody could explain it. But when it happened to the ferrets, they said, oh, this is what happened to those children. And this was in 2012. And they stopped all the experiments with the coronavirus vaccines. And then in 2014, the FDA helped develop a dengue vaccine. And they saw some of those signals in the clinical trials. But they ignored them. And they sent that dengue vaccine to the Philippines. Philippines gave it 100,000 kids, and when the dengue came through the next time, the wild dengue, those kids got horrendously sick. 600 of them died. And there are people now, you know, being criminally prosecuted in the Philippines for that because the signals were there and they ignored them. And so, you know, the question with coronavirus, these companies who are, there's 108 companies doing coronavirus vaccines. And if you think it, put yourself, and all of them have been given immunity from liability. So no matter how many people they kill or injure, they don't care. The, each one, it's like a lottery number. You know, you're given a lottery number and told, and the U.S. federal government is paying for those studies. The company's got no skin in the game. It's just a lottery number for them, and if they win the lottery, then they're, you know, they can end up with a trillion-dollar vaccine. They're going to give it to 7 billion people. Let's say it's, you know, $100 a piece. The HPV vaccine is $420 for the, you know, for the series. So it's not unimaginable this would be a $100 vaccine. And that means just doing it one year, you get $750 million. Right? It's a really, it's a big money product. So all these companies are given a vaccine to experiment on. The federal government is paying for those for the most part. And it's just like throwing poop up against the wall. You know, if it sticks and you won the lottery, but, you know, most of it is not going to stick. What do they care? And they can't be sued by anybody. It'll be just another one of these vaccines that hurt people or injure people or kill people. Uh-oh, you know, hopefully, God bless them, hopefully they'll find a vaccine that does what people imagine vaccines to do in their magical thinking. We'll give it to everybody, and everybody is, you know, is protected forever from that virus, and nobody ever gets sick. But, you know, I don't know if there's ever been a vaccine in history that has worked that way. I'd love it if somebody would tell me one. You know, having read a lot about the history of vaccines, I don't know of any that have worked that way. That's how they work in the public imagination, but that's never how any of them have worked in real life. It's much more complex. And we're being told not to talk about those complexity. We live in democracies. 
And, you know, democracies rely upon the free flow of information. You can't have a democracy if there's censorship, or if the public is not allowed to debate, you know, and to understand issues and have access to information. And yet, you know, the whole drive of this industry is to really to take, it's a tyrannical industry because, you know, it's now controlling the health industry, the pharmaceutical paradigm, pharmaceutical regulators are now controlling every aspect of our lives. You know, they're controlling how close, whether you can visit a beach and go surfing, what are you going to do on your holiday? You know, whether you can leave your house, whether you can go to work, whether you can make a living, whether you can, you know, get close to your girlfriend. Whether you have to wear a mask when you go outside. And then, you know, they want to be able to tell us which vaccines to take. And as you just pointed out, they're already there. They're already ordering people. If you want a job, if you want to visit your grandmother, you got to have this vaccine. And we have no idea what it will do to you because they don't. We just believe the gospel. I want to ask one last question before we wrap up because I know we've gone over time. And thank you, Robert. But there seems to be more and more people that have followed mainstream advice, followed the authoritative narrative for a lot of their life that are now, because of this coronavirus or this particular point in time in history, are starting to step out of that and be open to things that you're saying, things that potentially I share, things that come from different media outlets, some would say alternative. And I find it really fascinating because people that would never have entertained the things that you're talking about or even considered it now are starting to gravitate towards that and even just to be able to allow that information to come in. And they might still say, you know what, I don't believe that or I don't want to believe what Robert says or these other people say because if that is true, then what other beliefs have I held on to in my life that may be wrong or maybe wrong is not the right word but needs further investigation so do you see that there's a silver lining in this at the moment have you noticed that in your own i think people are waking up and you know this is kind of what we've always said i mean the world health organization and bill gates have always been clear that they want to vaccinate everybody including adults and you know among ourselves We've always said that when they start trying to forcibly vaccinate adults, that's when they will have gone a bridge too far. If people, I mean, people for some reason, they'll let kids do this and they, you know, they'll put on the blinders and put their head in the sand and say, you know, it's not real because it's not happening to me. And then when all of a sudden, you know, they start talking about, it happening to, you know, about forcing it on adults, people start paying attention. And then there's a lot of, you know, everybody's looking at this now and, you know, they're telling us, yeah, the vaccine is coming. And people are starting to hear uh, stories about it. I mean, even on the mainstream media, they're saying, oh, vaccines can't injure you. That's never been acknowledged before. You know, where they're saying it has to be safe. Well, if it has to be safe, that means it could be dangerous. And, you know, that's an acknowledgement. It could be dangerous. And that's something they've just told us. They're, they're not dangerous. They can't hurt you at all. Even though, you know, the U.S. Vaccine Court has paid out $4 billion 
And there's a really rigorous $250,000 cap on recoveries, of, even if you're dead. It's the most you can get. So that's a lot of money. And HHS, the Health and Human Services Administration, admits that only fewer than 1% of vaccine injuries are ever even recognized. You have to multiply that by 100, at least, because it's fewer than 100, 1%. But people you know, are able to put their blinders on and ignore it. But I think a lot of people are waking up today. And I'm happy for that. But I don't see a silver lining in this, what's happening now, I think. You know, I think people have to really arm themselves with knowledge and are going to have to use everything, all of their energies to defend themselves from this behemoth that's coming at us. Because it's very well organized and, you know, the pharmaceutical cartel has been planning this for years, and you look at you know the documents. You can go to our website, the Children's Health Defense. Um, follow me on Instagram, and uh, you know I know we, you and I, have a lot of overlapping followers, and you know get informed. And you know what we try to do is weaponize information for you. Make sure that you're equipped with information that is real, that is sourced to peer-reviewed scientific studies or government databases, and that you can use with confidence when you go out into the world and defend these, you know, your position. Robert, I want to thank you so much for joining us on this podcast today. I know you're a very, very busy man with a huge mission, and I just want to tell you that I love you. I respect you, and stay safe, brother, because... We need you. <laughs> Thanks, Brian. You too. <laughs> Thank you. And say hello yeah. to your wonderful family too. We'll get a meal next time I'm over in LA, whenever that may be. Love you. See you, mate. You Thanks, man. If you would like to become a qualified health coach, then the Institute for Integrative Nutrition, or IIN for short, can help you achieve your goals. I completed their health coaching course many years ago, which has been one of the catalysts for my own journey into what I now love to do, which is to help people achieve greater health through the sharing of information through my books, seminars, podcasts, TV shows, and films. I recommend IIN for anyone wishing to pursue a career in the health coaching and wellness space. IIN is a one-year course, so that if you're a full-time worker, busy parent, or wherever you are in your life, it is flexible enough so you'll be able to complete all the required curriculum. Please see the link included in the podcast show notes or my website to access the free sample class and first module of their program. This will give you a great taste of the format as well as the structure, and you can also utilize my special discount that I can offer you if you decide to sign up. Make sure you tell the admissions team that you're part of the Pete Evans Tuition Savings to claim your very substantial discount. Please visit integrativenutrition.com or email admissions at integrativenutrition.com. The information, views and opinions expressed in this podcast should not be treated as a substitute for nutritional, medical or other advice by a qualified professional. Guests in this podcast express their own opinions, experiences, and conclusions. Nothing in this podcast should be used to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any medical condition. Neither Pete Evans nor any sponsor endorse any views, opinions, or conclusions expressed or shared in this podcast.